This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts begins with a series of remarkable mountaintop experiences right from the start. In the opening scene of chapter 1, we witness the resurrected Christ standing on top of the Mount of Olives, explaining how his followers will end up taking the good news of the gospel from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Luke tells us that since he'd already written about the things that Jesus began to do during his time on earth, he will now write what Jesus continued to do in and through his church. The verses swell with a crescendo all the way to the ascension of Jesus, where he is lifted first to the skies and then to the right hand of the Father, where the ascended Christ, we saw last week, is even right now. Having ascended has sent his spirit to dwell inside of us. There it is that he intercedes for us before the throne of God. He is building up his church, preparing a place for us even right now, and reigning over all things, including your life. The second incredible mountaintop experience is in Acts 2. Uh, There Luke records what happens on Mount Zion, or Jerusalem as it is often called. As the church is is gathered, the wind of God moves through their midst. Fire falls from heaven as the early church is baptized with the Holy Spirit so that they might tell the mighty works of God. It's on that mountain that the promise of God, the long foretold promise of God is fulfilled. The church is set ablaze with the fire of the gospel and empowered by the Spirit to be witnesses for Christ. So each of those stunning scenes, the Ascension and Pentecost, are massive hinges on the timeline of redemptive history. Yet, in between the drama of these two mountaintop experiences, Luke reminds us how wonderfully practical the Christian life is. And he addresses some seemingly ordinary decisions. Here's what comes to our attention. The apostles need to choose who will replace Judas Iscariot as one of them. Now, while this text may not register quite as high on the amazement scale, Luke is not wasting one stroke of his pen. The Holy Spirit is not negligent with one word of his breath. There are lessons here for the apostles and the early Christians to learn as they wait. And there are lessons for you and I as a church to learn here as well. You see, the Christian life has never been a range of continual mountaintop experiences. Much of the Christian life is lived in between them. What spiritual lessons have you learned in the valley of ordinary life? In Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 26, 
we journey between the mountaintop experiences of the Ascension and Pentecost and learn some valuable lessons in the valley of ordinary life. The simple practices of obedience, of being with other believers, waiting on God's perfect timing and prayer are all hallmarks of the Christian life. And and we will discover along the way how it came to be that again there were 12, apostles that is, but we will also see uh, things that we might glean both spiritually and practically from these early disciples. I want to shape our study by highlighting three hallmarks that we see in these early believers. We find them first, united in prayer. Second, rooted in scripture. And third, guarding the church's witness. If you're able to, would you stand to your feet as we read now from God's holy and inerrant word. Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akodama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, Show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry, an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first hallmark of this band of disciples is that they were united in prayer, verses 12 through 14. As the group descended the Mount of Olives, they returned to Jerusalem. Luke is certain to tell us that they were not just, this was not just an upper room, but the direct article likely suggests this was the upper room. Yes, that upper room where Jesus and the disciples shared their last supper. 
Before we look any further at this scene in front of us, I want us to remember what happened in that one. It was in the upper room that Jesus taught the apostles the importance of obedience, saying, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, 15. It was there that he prayed his followers would be so united that they would all be one, just as Jesus and the Father were one, John 17, 21. It was in the upper room that Jesus taught them to pray as he asked his Father to both sanctify, cleanse, and also send them, John 17, 17. Now, in the scene we're exploring, we see the disciples practicing the very things they learned from their Lord and Savior. Look, look over this text with me. I want you to see it for yourself. First, the disciples are obedient. You see this in verse 12? They don't blaze over to Bethlehem. They don't go down to Galilee. They return to Jerusalem just as Jesus had commanded them. Only eight verses earlier, Jesus ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to stay and wait for the promise of the Father to be fulfilled and the sending of his spirit. This may seem just like a small thing, but with God, obedience in the small things is a big thing. And here we find them walking in obedience. The disciples were also united. We see this in verses 13 and 14. As Luke lists each of the apostles by name, the men who had been chosen by Jesus for a unique role in the church from the very beginning, this list is recorded for the first time in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, but, but there's some slight variations between his two recordings of these lists. For one, the order's mixed up. In the Gospel of Luke, he begins with Peter and then lists Andrew and then James. Here, it's the Apostle John that moves into that second slot to bring emphasis on these three men that will continue to be talked about through the witness of Scripture that would lead the early church. Peter, John, and James. And of course, there's one other difference in the comparison of these two lists. In the Gospel of Luke, there is the name Judas Iscariot. Uh, here in Acts chapter 1, his name is no longer there. But it's not only the apostles who are mentioned. Verse 15 says 120 people were gathered we know from the writings of Paul that at some point over 500 people were gathered and witnessed the resurrected Christ. Here, there's uh, included intentionally in the writings of Luke, he's always eager to include the presence of women. Women at the resurrection. Women at the, here at the ascension and then at the pouring out of the Spirit. And of this group of important women is Mary, the mother of Jesus, the one who Luke said is most highly favored who was there at the birth of the Savior, who will soon witness the birth of the church. The final group pointed out are the brothers of Jesus. These brothers, we know, were first not keen on the idea of their oldest brother being the Messiah. But after the resurrection, they come to also to believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in their own brother, found life in his name. And so all of these are described as being with one accord, Eleven men who just recently were found arguing over who would be the greatest in the kingdom. Disciples who disagreed passionately over political views. Women who came from very different backgrounds in society. All of these people together, and they were literally, the phrase is, they were with one heart and one mind. 
How's that possible? Only the gospel can do that. These people, as different as they were, had shared in belief in Jesus. And now their eyes were fixed on him. The church was also continually prayerful. We see this as we reach verse 14. The golden key of prayer unlocks a thousand doors. The golden key of prayer unlocks a thousand doors, and we'll continue to see that in the coming chapters. David Peterson notes it's striking that at almost every important hinge turning point in the narrative of Acts, we find the mention of prayer. And so let me just summarize in this first few verses what we see is the practices of the early Christians. Obediently waiting on the Lord as one praying people. There will be a a resounding exhortation as we go through the book of Acts for us to cultivate simple practices like we find here. But as we do, I want to go ahead and just lay a sort of hermeneutical approach, a how we translate the Bible approach to when we come to passages like this. This is a descriptive text, not a prescriptive passage. It's telling us what happened. It's not giving us a list of things that we should do. But what I want to also see is, uh, surely there is some example for us to follow here, I believe. I just wonder, in view of those three areas that we looked at of of obedience and unity and prayer, if there's not one of those areas that you might just circle in your thoughts as an area that you might have to grow in. For example, is there a small area of your life where you're not walking in obedience to the clear teaching of Scripture? Just a small area that is a big deal. Do you have any habits that hinder unity within the body of Christ? Habits like gossip, or slander, or just giving another church member the cold shoulder when you walk into a room? Is your life a prayerful life? Just three quick examples of how we might look at the example of these early believers and see how we might apply it to our lives. What I want you to see primarily, though, is that the early church was united in prayer. The second characteristic that we observe of this group is how they were rooted in Scripture, verses 15 to 20. Now the Apostle Peter stands up in this group of the 120 and points them to the Word of God. We're going to spend more time on this in the coming weeks to see what that meant for them. But for now, I want you to understand just some brief things. There's three because I am a Baptist. But they're coming at you very thick. One, Scripture must be fulfilled. Two, Scripture is not just written by men, but is also Spirit-breathed. If you want more on that, you can see 2 Timothy chapter 3.16. And three, Scripture is a guide for the Christian life. So one, Scripture must be fulfilled. Two, Scripture is spirit-breathed, spirit-wrought. It's written by God, not just men. And it is a guide for the Christian life. And we're moving on. All right, so Peter appeals to Scripture to do a couple of things. Scripture here is revealing the need the church had. And it's also providing the solution to the need that awaits them. Let's look at both of those. First, it is Scripture that reveals their need. Now, Peter quotes from Psalm chapter 69, which is applied in the New Testament to Jesus on five different occasions. Peter uh, shows that when David penned the Psalms, 
he wrote not only of situations in his life, but also wrote prophetically of future situations in the life of the coming Messiah. That's not new to any of you. We've been through dozens of the Psalms at this point, but that is what Peter's doing. He's interpreting Scripture in its full light, showing how it points to Jesus. Back in its original context, in Psalm 69, David writes as an innocent sufferer, and and he's singing of how his enemies are insulting him, how they hate him without a cause, yet at the same time how his heart burns with the how, for to be in the presence of God, to be in the house of God. The verse quoted is Psalm 69, verse 25. It's part of the prayer where David's asking for God's judgment to fall on the wicked. The lyrics of this ancient song ultimately point to Jesus as the one who is the innocent sufferer, who is hated without cause, even by one of his own apostles. And so Peter's then praying for the judgment of God to rightly fall on Judas, the betrayer of Christ. You'll notice there's um, some parentheses around verses 18 and 19. What's happening here is, remember, Peter's just got up and he's speaking to the 120 people. But he's talking some, he's using some insider language that Luke wants to make sure that you know. The insider language all revolves around the story of Judas and what happened in his life. And so Luke just explains. He interrupts in verses 18. And what we find is, it's probably too graphic for a PG-13 movie. It's definitely too graphic for a Sunday morning sermon. But Luke tells us that after Judas had betrayed Jesus, he bought a field with that money that became the place where he hung himself. Instead of becoming a field of dreams, we see that this place is referred to as a field of blood. And so the need of a 12th disciple is presented biblically, showing how this is not just a a temporary lapse in the judgment of Jesus on who would be his disciples. No, this is the preordained will of God for the life of Judas, that he would be brought near to Christ, that Judas out of his own accord would rebel against Christ and choose wickedness, and ultimately that Judas would be punished by God for what he had done. But scripture also provides the solution to the need. Peter quotes this time from Psalm chapter 109, which sings of wicked and deceitful men who unjustly hate and slander and attack the psalmist, eventually asking in Psalm 109 verse 8, may another take his place of leadership. Now Psalm 109 is also applied to the Judas situation. Judas is the traitor who should be replaced so that there could once again be 12 apostles. Now, if you go back to the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22, Jesus draws a parallel between the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes of Israel. He says in verses 28 through 30 that the apostles might eat and drink at his table in his kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So it's as if these 12, these Apostles will represent the new people of God, the new Israel of God, made up of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. So there's some theological theological significance to there being the 12 apostles who in some form or fashion represent, represent the 12 tribes of Israel. So allow me just to make one quick aside before we move on. 
as we think of these early disciples and how they saw Scripture as true and spirit-breathed and, uh, and how it guides the Christian life, I just want to ask, do we? Do you see Scripture that way? Or the other six days of the week, does your Bible sit unopened on a coffee table or in your car? I don't mean to create any shame, but what I want you to see brothers, sisters, friends, is the wisdom of God has been shown to us, revealed to us through the word. Are there needs in your life that need solutions? Search the scripture. There are needs in your life that you aren't even aware of that scripture will unearth and reveal. And scripture will not only show you the need, it will point you to the Savior that satisfies those needs. Let us be a people who are rooted in scripture. And then finally... Let's note how the apostles were set on guarding the church's witness. Verses 21 to 26. So there's a need. They need a new apostle. And now when they go about electing one, they do so, I want us to see this, with deep convictions set on both protecting the gospel and also advancing the gospel or protecting and proclaiming it. First, we see the church working to protect the gospel. Specifically, the way they're going to do that is by selecting first two men who meet specific qualifications to be an apostle. First, we see that he had to be there from the beginning of Jesus' public ministry that was marked by his baptism, by the baptism of John. And second, he also had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection. So this man had to see Jesus in the flesh going about his baptism and then earthly ministry, and also have witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Why was this important? So that everything that this man knew, that this apostle knew, was firsthand, not relying on any secondhand information. Because the truthfulness, the reality, the veracity of the gospel is what was at stake. These early Christians knew there would be both fighting from within and oppression and persecution from without. And the only thing that would ensure that the church stood on what was true would be if the purest and and most faithful and eyewitnessed and defending and life-sacrificing way of living would be found in the witness of these apostles. That word witness is going to come up time and time again. And here you have the first witnesses. The role of the apostle was absolutely unique. They had to be eyewitnesses, each of them chosen by Christ for this office. Real quick, so this means if someone you know, in a grocery store, hands you a business card, and it says, Reverend so-and-so, title, Apostle. You should just hand it right back and say, thank you so much, you are not an apostle. <laughs> or you could just smile and throw it away on your way out. Or if someone on your television at night says, you know, I'm apostle this, or apostle that. No, they're not. This office of apostle has come and gone. This was a window of the church that has opened and closed. The importance of the apostles is so important for you and me because what this means is the faith that we stand on, what the apostles witnessed firsthand, they wrote down. They wrote down and these scriptures have been preserved for us so that the same gospel that was heralded in the first century is heralded in the 21st century. 
in the 22nd century and will be until the return of Christ, we stand on an authorized, verified, witnessed gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ. And it is to be protected. It's been protected through all the ages. And Lord willing, will be continued until his great return. So they're called to protect the gospel, but also to proclaim it. To proclaim it. The same way that the church wanted to protect the gospel, they must also proclaim it. And so they need a new witness. Two men are put forward. I just think of this on a ballot. So you've got on one hand Matthias. That's pretty simple. On the other hand, you've got this candidate called Joseph. Also, his name is also called Barsabbas, who's also known as Justice. So I think the guy may have lost just because he had three names. And nobody, I don't know who this is. Uh, no, there's reasons. Those are all just different, different languages speaking of the same person. But with Matthias, there seems to be no confusion. It was not luck or chance. It was the will of Christ that Matthias was chosen. Notice they pray to Jesus, asking the one who knows the hearts of all to show them who he had already chosen. And then they casted lots to see who it would be. Now, it might seem strange to us that these people would cast lots for such an important decision or that they would cast lots at all. Um, of course, when we, we go to elect new elders as a, as a church uh, to serve as pastors, we don't just pull out a slot machine and see what happens. No, we wouldn't do that. We would find qualified men that would be candidates. We would uh, look to the Lord for his leading, and we would trust that he would reveal his will. And that's actually what's happening here. That's exactly what they're doing. Uh, casting lots was a long-held practice in Israel in order to determine the Lord's will. We saw this in our study of the tabernacle with the umen and the thumen that were inside the, uh, the breastplate of the high priest. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This is actually the last time we see the practice of casting lots in the storyline of Scripture. Why do you think that might be? I think it's because this practice belongs in the old era before the pouring out of the Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes upon the new community, this practice is just no longer necessary. And still F.F. Bruce says the most important piece of this is that even in the casting of lots, the apostles cast themselves completely on God for the outcome in dependent prayer. Luke is clear that Matthias was not chosen by chance, but by Christ himself. In fact, he uses the same verb in verse 24 as in verse 2 and, and back in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus is calling Matthew to come. Come, I've chosen you. And so the apostles were chosen by Christ at the beginning of his, his ministry and now Matthias is added to their number. Everything is back in order. There are again 12 apostles. In between these two mountaintop experiences of the Ascension and Pentecost, there are valuable lessons for the church to learn in ordinary life. The simple practices of obedience, of being with other believers, of waiting on the Lord, of prayer, these hallmarks of the Christian life. But we know there's more going on here than just how it came that, again, there were 12 there is another mountain on the horizon, one called Pentecost, a day that changes everything once again. I love how John Stott summarizes this. He says, so we leave Luke's first chapter 
of the Acts with 120 waiting in Jerusalem, preserving in prayer with one heart and mind, poised, ready to fulfill Christ's command just as soon as he has fulfilled his promise. And what God has promises, promised will surely come to pass. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that instructs us. Your word that is true and spirit-breathed and what a good guide it is for us. I ask that in the valley of ordinary life as we go about making decisions, that you would make us wise, that we would be a people who in the pattern of these early believers would look to you for everything, that we might be united in prayer as a people, that we would be rooted in Scripture, and that by your grace we would both guard the witness of the church as we protect and proclaim the good news of Christ. I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org. 